Before we get started today, I am so excited to let you know my new book, Your Baby Doesn't Come With a Book, is available exclusively with my friends at The Memo from today. It's my guide to the first four weeks of parenthood. Just head to thememo.com.au to order your copy. And next Wednesday, the 20th, it'll be available online and in-store at all good booksellers. Thank you to everyone who has placed a pre-order. I'm absolutely blown away and humbled by the reception. And as an aside, becoming an author is the most proud my mum has ever been of me. And she's a pretty proud mum. Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Golshevsky, paediatrician and father of three. Welcome to my podcast, Dr. Golly and the Experts. Each episode, I'm joined by a parent who has faced an enormous challenge in raising their child and come out the other side as the expert. September is Blood Cancer Awareness Month, and the word cancer strikes fear into the hearts of most. But imagine hearing it applied to your child. Noah Denawi was diagnosed with a rare blood cancer a week before his seventh birthday. His mum, Samantha Sanfilippo, had to wrap her head around the diagnosis and then somehow pull herself together and face up to the challenge of supporting a seriously unwell child through diagnosis and the harrowing treatment journey. Samantha, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us about Noah? Tell us about Noah in the first six years of life. So Noah was born on the 3rd of November which actually happens to be the anniversary. Um, My brother passed away from cancer on the 3rd of November and he was born prematurely. And I remember my mum saying to me, just don't have him on that day. And um, he came into the world on that day. Head full of hair, eyes wide open, the easiest baby in the world. He put me into a full sense of security (laughs) for when I had the second. He's such an easy baby. So gorgeous baby, full head of hair, really on brand for you, being a newborn photographer. (laughs) Yep, he was a newborn photographer's dream. You must have five million photos of this newborn. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. He was such a good little boy, slept through the night from like beyond textbook. Amazing. We'd never had any medical issues. We, it was easy. It was easy to be his mum. And tell me, when when did this journey begin? When did you first notice that something wasn't right? So we had been to Europe and we'd come back and like every time we've gone overseas, we all got sick. It was mm. European summer. We'd come back to winter and we all had laryngitis. And um, it was just one night I was putting him to bed and like kids do, mom, I need a glass of water. Mom, I need to go to the toilet. He called me and he said, mama, I've got this weird lump on my on his collarbone and I sort of prodded around and said no it's nothing go to sleep you're fine this is like parents get this multiple times a week I've got this I've got that it's nothing don't worry have a glass of water yeah walk it off yeah kind of mum um and that probably comes from my childhood where my brother died at the age of 28 when I was 10 so my mum is the opposite she's a bit of a helicopter parent you have a cough go to the doctor, you have a sore leg, go to the hospital. She's experienced the worst. Right, Mm. which I completely understand now. But at the time, um, I didn't think much of it. And the next day I mentioned it to my mum. And I remember her saying to me, you know, you can't play around with their health. You need to take him to the doctor. And my exact words were, what's he going to have, cancer? But I took him. So I took him and the doctor confirmed what I thought. It's an enlarged lymph node. 
he's been unwell. Um, at the time, I didn't know what the symptoms of cancer were, so their weight loss, um, loss of appetite, night sweats, fever. He didn't have any of those. What I've learned now is that children don't display those symptoms until they're knocking on death's door. Mm. They're much different to adults. And he just said, monitor it. It looked well at the time. He was full of energy. You wouldn't think anything was wrong other than the lump. Yeah, and it was so tiny, like the size of a pea. You really had to look for it. But I remember he was trying to climb the windowsill at the doctor's and we sort of giggled at him and said, yeah, he looks all right. This child can't be sick. He can't be sick. It didn't even enter my mind. So we let it go for a few weeks. I sort of went back to mum and said, happy, I did what you asked and there's nothing wrong. And then I was getting ready for work one morning and he's quite little for his age. We're not the most statured people, so it's genetic, <laughs> but he's quite petite. And I sort of had said to him, look, I need to drop you off at the gate today. I can't walk you to the front door. Can you please hold your own school bag? And he said to me, Mama, I, I would, but that lump hurts. And so I checked it again and it was three times the size. So I went back to the doctor and he said, look, let's do an ultrasound. I still don't think it's anything sinister. There's no symptoms. Again, cancer wasn't even mentioned didn't even enter my mind. And, and just for context, yeah. of 100 kids that have that same story, 99 point something of them, right. it is nothing. It's a lymph node. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I had no alarm bells. Did the ultrasound and by the time we got in, by the end of the week, that lump had grown a bit more because we're talking about a very aggressive cancer, but mm. I didn't know that. And I remember saying to the technician, because it was a Friday before a long weekend, so I had... It always s- happens. Always. <laughs> Public holidays. <laughs> always happens. And I said to him, look, I know you, you can't tell me anything, but just so I can sleep over this long weekend, what do you think? And the technician said, we see these all the time. I wouldn't worry, but if it's anything crazy, we'll call you. And we didn't hear back. Another thing with this type of cancer, it doesn't show up in your blood. It's not, it's a blood cancer, but it's not like leukemia. So... Because it li- lives in the lymph tissue. We'll talk right. about that in a moment. Yeah. yeah. So bloods were fine. Everything was fine. We sort of went back to the office um, a couple of days later and they'd found nothing. And the doctor had said to me, look, I've sort of done a bit of research and looked ahead and I've called the Children's Cancer Centre. He's like, don't don't get freaked out by that word. And I really wasn't. And I said, okay. And um, he goes, if it's not a cyst, then it's cancer based on its position. We both sort of looked at each other and I didn't really react. And he was like, did you hear what I said? And I'm like, yeah, but, and he's like, yeah, that's what I think. I'd actually, it seems so wild that if it's not this, it's that. He's like, what do you want to do? Um, The GP asked you what you want to do. Yeah, he had given me some options and I, he's a wonderful GP. He's young and we've had lots of conversations since. And even just as a general practitioner, I've now learned from the oncologist, they're not trained. They, They know basic stuff, but... I mean, as I explain it, a lot of people didn't know what was wrong until we got to head of oncology. Absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. I think being a GP is one of the hardest jobs in the world because yeah. you, you, you are that triage. Yes. And you've got to make the decision whether to escalate something or dismiss it. It's yeah. really, really and hard. And I'm sure, I'm sure this will be a lesson for him. He, like I said, I think he's only 30, mm. maybe younger. And I'm sure it'll be different for him for the rest of his life. It certainly was for me. So he sort of said, I can send you to oncology, which I really don't think what it is, or we can start a course of antibiotics, but we've got to give the antibiotics at least nine or I can't remember what it was, but days to work. And in the back of my mind in all of this, because I'm from that Italian pushy family, 
mum kept saying, take him to emergency. And I kept saying, I don't want to waste resources. Like we've got this under control. We've got a plan. I never would have imagined it was as serious as what it was because he looked so well. What was dad saying throughout this part of the journey? Um, I, I remember calling him and he's like, how did it go? And he said, and I said to him, if it's not this, it's cancer. And he just said no and hung up. So I called him back and I said, I need you to listen to me. It's not a matter of opinion. It's either this or it's that. I don't think it's that, but it's... So it sounds like both of you just were not willing to accept that it was something serious. I was, but I wasn't there yet. I'm just, I'm the sort of person, that let's not panic until we have all the information. He's a bit more like, let's pretend it doesn't exist, mm. <laughs> even if it does. And when did the final so, diagnosis come? Quite a little while later, I always thought that if you're diagnosed or if there's a consideration that it might be cancer, everything happens, you know, super mm. quick and it didn't. So we were then referred, we did the antibiotics, we did half of the course and this thing had grown, like it was visible now, it was sticking out of his shoulder. Best way I can describe it is Quasimodo, like it was like a, a hump. I took him back and I said, this is not an infection. I was so scared of being the crazy mum but then I just stopped caring. I was just like, he's, he started presenting with symptoms. What's his color change. Well, his color changed. I look back at photos, even looking at photos of, like I'm a photographer. I have a photo of him just playing with balloons in our lounge room. And I look back at that photo now and I think, how did no one, including myself, not look at that and go, okay. He, looked, he looked what? He looked sickly? Or? He looked yellow. Right. He looked yellow. His eyes started to be quite, under his eyes started to, be quite dark. And he didn't have pain? No pain, no night sweats at this point, no fevers, no weight loss, and no decline in energy. So these are the, the symptoms that you're describing. We call them constitutional symptoms. So they're mm -hmm. general body symptoms that don't necessarily relate to the body part or body system that is impacted by cancer. And these constitutional symptoms are weight loss night sweats, the kind where you have to change the bed sheets twice yes. in the night. It's yep. not just like I'm a bit warm. Right. And and they are, they're quite profound. Yes. But as you said, in children, they can be quite late in yes. the piece. Yeah. It's like weight loss. If someone, if you're with someone every day and you see them lose weight, you kind you don't of don't tell. It. Yeah, of course. And it was the same sort of thing. So there was little declines, but because they had sort of mentioned that it might be an infection, when he cracked his first really low-grade fever, I said, oh, maybe it is an infection because he had had an infection in his lymph node the year before. He's allergic to mosquito bites. We'd been down on the peninsula. He'd had a mosquito bite. I knew what an infection looked like. It tracks, it's sore, it's swollen. This lump was just a lump. There was nothing to it. And so I went back to the doctor and said, this is not an infection. I'm not going to keep giving him antibiotics. And he agreed. Um, the lump was bigger by this point, so we went to an ENT and we had sort of played around with the idea. We had been to Dubai. Um, they thought it might have been a type of tuberculosis, um, an illness called MACE, I think it's called, which is from dirt. Yeah, it's a mycobacterium avium complex, which is a, yeah, it's right. complicated. It's not, it's not common, but it is one of those things that... You know, the, the skin has an overlying discoloration as well. But there was no discoloration. Was yeah. So this is where she was confused. So went back to the doctor and he said, I think it's time we go to oncology. How long are we talking now from when he first said, mummy, I've got this funny About lump? About six weeks. 
It was about five to six weeks, I think. So, yeah, we went to the cancer centre at Monash and as I was walking through the door, so we had done a few x-rays and things like that, the GP called me and he said to me, just wanted to know how you went with the um, ENT. I said, actually, we're at the cancer centre and he was like, I'm so glad to hear that. We need to work out what the mass on his lung is. I had no idea what he was talking about. And so... I can't explain it. My husband was there. Noah was there. There's a bunch of kids with no hair, which is something like you avoid, you pretend that doesn't exist and all of a sudden it's in front of you. And I couldn't breathe. So I just sat there and I remember my husband looking at me and I'm like, just don't talk because if I, if you talk or if I talk, I'll start crying and I don't want to scare the kids and I don't want to scare Noah and I don't want to cry in public. Um... And then Dr. Peter Downey, who was Noah's oncologist, who's, I think he just won the Order of Australia. He's He's one of the most special humans on the planet. Right. I love Mm. him. (laughs) He walked out and he's like, come, come and sit down. And immediately he said to me, yeah, I think this is lymphoma, but it's a really strange lymphoma because his tumours are crisscrossing across his body. And usually, apparently, lymphoma will start on one side and then moved to the other, and he's just sort of zigzagging. So he'd had the mass later we discovered that was here was all in his chest. The blood supply cut off just in time. Otherwise, it would have restricted his windpipe. He could have had a stroke. They were just sort of amazed that he wasn't dead because it was so big. He had some in his face, in his, not in his spine, which is really important because that's when it starts to get a little tricky. It wasn't in his spinal fluid or his blood, but it was everywhere else and it had started to attack the bone. So before we knew that, so in that doctor's office, he said, it's probably stage two, stage two or three. I'd be very doubtful if it's more advanced because clinically he'd started getting the night sweats you mentioned. And parents ask me this all the time. Oh, my kid's really sweaty. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is, this is change the sheets every couple of minutes, dehydration sweats. I I can't, I can't explain it. It's like someone's you've jumped into a pool of water yeah. and gone straight to bed. Um, and he had started to get consistent fever and I found him slumped. I'd taken him to a playground. I thought, oh, maybe this is the denial. I said, maybe he sort of listened to us talk and he's trying to play on it because I hadn't sent him to school. So I went to his favourite playground and I just found him slumped. He just couldn't get up. He was at the bottom of the slide and he's like, mum, I just want to go home. So... Went to the hospital, did all the tests, and even that, I mean, prior to that day, he'd had his vaccinations, but I think that's the most medical intervention, if you call it that, he'd ever had. And all of a sudden, it's 3am and we're trying to get a slot into CT scan between, you know, an old lady and a mental health patient. He's been fasted all day and he just became nonverbal. He just, he's such a, he's me, such a chatty little boy, really... His um, language is very advanced, but all of a sudden he became a one-year-old again. And we just held him down, which is, it feels horrible, but I felt like it was necessary because I didn't want to miss that slot because there was people waiting. So I just held him down and we did the CT scan and that's when we realised it was absolutely everywhere. So a treatment that should have been six months moved into close to two years because once it hits the bone, it becomes a lot more problematic So let's talk about the treatment in a moment, but first I want to explain what lymphoma is. And the irony is that the person who taught me about lymphoma 
more than 10 years ago is Peter Down. Is it? Yeah. I was a student of his when I was a medical student wow. doing research together. Um, you could not possibly have been in better hands yeah. than him. So what is a lymphocyte? It's a type of, of white blood cell. There are three different types. You've got T lymphocytes, B lymphocytes, and then NK, which stands for natural killer. Um, and we have, people will have heard of stem cells in the bone marrow where all our blood cells come from and they mature into different types of cells. The B lymphocytes mature in the bone marrow, which is why they're called B, and then the T's in the thymus, which is why they're called T, and then they enter the bloodstream. And they, the B and the T cells form, they're an important part of our called adaptive immune system. So it's the, the memory immune system. It's how we use vaccines and how you don't, you know, if you have a particular virus, you won't suffer from it again most of the time because of this adaptive immune system. And then the natural killer ones work in the innate system, which is, which is more about protecting your body from things within the body, for example, cancers and bugs as well. Lymphoma is the name given to tumours that arise from these cells. And they occur mostly in the immune sites around the body. So lymph nodes, thymus, bone marrow, spleen. It's divided broadly into non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is about 90% of cases, and Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is characterized by a specific type of cell. But Noah had anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Really rare. Really rare. Type of non-Hodgkin's. It's really like a rare. middle-aged woman yeah. cancer, apparently. And it's also a cancer yeah. that's associated with breast implants. Yes. Not the random. ones you use now, but yeah. Yeah. Bizarre. Really random. <laughs> which is why it's very commonly a delayed diagnosis. Yeah. And this is a, a condition that affects the T cells, the T lymphocytes, it's hard to get your head around lymphoma. I mean, it's hard for medical students and, and doctors to get their head around lymphoma. It's not something you can see mm. necessarily. And as you said, it's zigzagging. It's moving around the body and it's impacting lymph tissue, but then it starts to impact other tissue, like you said, bone and yes. lung as well. Throw into that the fact that medical sites and people, doctors, nurses, etc., it's a whole new world for you. It's a whole mm. new language that you need to yep. understand and start speaking, get your head around. Did you find that easy to understand or was it overwhelming in the first few days? This sounds ridiculous, but I'm fortunate that my brother had cancer. So I had the ultimate cancer mum, which was my mum. So in terms of the emotional side, um, she'd been through it. She had been through the worst case scenario so that part was okay. Do you mean because you understood the lingo, this is not a new space for it you? It wasn't a new space, but my experience with cancer was death. That's what I was yeah. about to ask. Did you go there immediately? Straight away. My brother died within three months of diagnosis. And his cancer type? He had bowel cancer. At 28. Non-smoker, non-drinker, played lots of sports went in for a gastroscopy just because I think they did a H. pylori test and mm. he'd come back positive for that, So, as did most of my family. And we have a history of my grandparents and things like that. And, yeah, he, they had given him two years and then within a week it was six months and then a couple of days after that it was two months and I don't even think he lasted that long. So that was our experience with cancer. I couldn't even pronounce anaplastic large cell lymphoma when he explained it to me. And the first thing everyone says is don't Google. So that's the exactly what I did. <laughs> exactly. And you're searching for statistics. And you're not finding a lot online. You're not. And because 
childhood cancer doesn't get the research adult cancer gets. So the numbers, I believe, come out of America. There are a lot of loopholes American children need to jump through in terms of insurance Mm. to get the treatments we get. For example, we went on a preventative drug called vinblastine at the end of treatment. I don't, as far as I know, with parents I've spoken to in the States, they don't get that option. So the relapse rate for anaplastic large cell lymphoma from studies, which are mainly American, is high. It's over 50%. Studies that kids treated without the Vimblast. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's ridiculously high. So not only did I know that we were going to have to climb this mountain, after that I was thinking, okay, so we almost kill him to save him. And that's what Peter said to me. We were sitting down and when he told me, look, it's stage four and it's a lot worse than I think it is. His exact words to me were, we are going to throw the absolute kitchen sink at him. I want you to expand on that because, you know, lay people who don't have experience in this regard, it's cancer, lose your hair. That's that's what they know. Yes. Explain to me what you mean, what Peter meant by throw everything at these kids. What does that mean? So he had just come, Noah had just come out of surgery to insert a temporary line in his arm and that was traumatic enough. So this is a small straw basically to put into a vein like you get a drip but because these kids are getting serious chemotherapy medicines and they're constantly needing to have access it's not feasible eventually you you lose the ability to find a good vein it's also not nice to keep on you know they become a pin cushion so we put in these semi-permanent lines correct yeah so it was in his arm at first because we weren't sure whether he would need a port or a hickman so So these are all same thing but inserted very close to the heart. To the heart, right. The biggest blood vessels. Correct. So he called me into another room with my husband and, yeah, he said to me, look, it's a lot worse than we thought. And so my first question immediately was, is he going to die? And he said to me, not today, but if we don't start tonight, he will. I'm surprised he hasn't suffocated just by the tumour that had been near his windpipe. He goes, I think we caught it just in time or the blood supply cut just in time. And this is six weeks of journey. Six weeks. And now we're talking so hours. Six weeks before we were on the Amalfi Coast <laughs> and all of very middle class, very, I remember thinking to myself, we're both from immigrant families, you know, we didn't come from much money and we are in my own business. And I remember thinking, God, we did good. We've got these really healthy kids and... We're doing a holiday that my, like, if we got McDonald's once a fortnight, that was a big treat when I was a kid. And now we were sitting in a room being told that if we don't fill him with poison tonight, you have to trust me, by the way, we just met. Yeah. He's going to die. And he explained the treatment to me. So he said, usually lymphoma is about a six round course of treatment. So in Noah's particular case, it was five days as an inpatient being administered chemotherapy, and then 21 days to recover. And that's repeated six times. And what does the five days of chemotherapy do to him? So the main drug was called methotrexate. And methotrexate, it can kill, I think, your kidneys. So I think that's right. So they have to hyperhydrate you first. So they would put him on a drip of liquid of water for a couple of, or maybe a day or two, and he had to pee every hour. I would have to collect that pee. And when the levels were right, whatever they had to be, he would then be administered the methotrexate. 
Then they would do a finger prick every hour until he reached a point of toxicity that was safe and then they would put a reversal drug into him as to not to kill him. And so we would repeat that over and over. And with the ALCL treatment, there were alternating protocols. So one round we would do that and then the other round we'd do a different one. We're talking about waking up a six-year-old to pee, lots of finger prick needles. Yep. You're not, I assume you just don't sleep. You don't sleep. You don't sleep at all. Like you catnap and, or you try and sleep during the day, but that's impossible. What, What have you told Noah? What have you said to him? In the beginning, because he became nonverbal, so they have play therapy and music therapy. They have all these beautiful therapies, but he was that weird age. He wasn't young enough to be sucked in by it. Mm. And he wasn't old enough to understand, okay, this is temporary. He was in this, it was like the age of inconvenience. Like, why are you doing this? I don't like doing this. And how was he communicating with you? He wasn't. He was biting, screaming, hitting. Why are you doing this to me? Um, And I just tapped into my mum's. And I remember my mum would just say to me, you've just got to get it done. And I would just say to him, we've got to do this. I'd hold him. I said, it's going to be a couple of seconds and he'd bite and scratch and do all of that. But the minute it was done, it was done. And then he went back to playing Minecraft. He didn't think about it. But there was one day, it's the only thing that really sticks out to me. And I've spoken to him about it since and he doesn't remember it. There's a lot of things he doesn't remember, which is good. He had to take, and it was for the silliest thing, um, steroids were taken orally. So, and they were disgusting, but they had to be taken quite frequently. So even now he won't take Panadol. It'll just come straight back out. Any consistency of syrup. He remembers. He's got so many aversions to custard, anything like that. He won't do it. Um, I used to just pop his cheeks and like shove it in his mouth because just the easiest way to do it. And so one day he was like, I don't want to do this. And And I just, I cracked and I said to him, if you don't do this, you die. I don't know how else I can tell you Does this. Do you know what that means to but that's die? That's the thing. No, he didn't. And it's the strangest moment to laugh in, but he answered back and he's quick. And he said to me, I don't care if I die. I'll just respawn. I'll come back. <laughs> We've got sausage dogs. He goes, I'll come back as a sausage dog. And I'd gotten a new rug. And he goes, I'll pull on your rug. <laughs> and so it's like 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm exhausted. I'm frazzled. And I started laughing. I said, yeah, okay. I said, but if you die and you respawn, I can't promise I'll be your mum. You might have a, if you're a sausage dog, a sausage dog will be your mum. And he looked at me and he's like, yeah, that's a terrible idea. I said, okay, so let's not die today. Okay. I'm like, please do this for me. And then we'll go and do something amazing once this is all done. And he, he became a lot better and a bit more, I mean, he still cried and you know, you're in those hospitals at night and you hear kids begging. It's, it's, it's a, unfathomable. It's unfathomable. And you, you do become immune to it. I saw children pass away. I saw children that were like, they didn't have parents. So the hospital had taken over, you know, parents with substance abuse and things like that. I saw teenagers, you know, and it's just a weird feeling. You definitely have to do a lot of nodding and pretend to smile and pretend everything's okay. But you know, all these kids are dying. And these kids are growing up unusually fast. Unusually fast. Because kids should not be using those words. No. They shouldn't know these concepts. No, that's right. And to discuss the mortality of your seven-year-old with him is like so straight. How do you explain that? Did, when, did he ask? He did later. Once he was better, 
we went for a walk one day and he actually said to me, I almost died, didn't I, mum? And I said, yeah, you did. And he said to me, I'm super strong though because I didn't. Like I kicked its ass. And I'm like, you did. And I'm like, I'm happy for him to to think that. I mean, he did, but I'm happy for, for that to be where his head's at with it. Like he doesn't sit there and feel sorry for himself. And I think that's the great thing. I, I think back to my brother and he had a little girl as well. And, you know, he, he was thinking about legacy and where she was going to be what was going to happen to him, we're, we're Catholic, but we're not ridiculously religious, you know. So he was worried about that, the afterlife, this and that. Kids don't care. They just want to play video games mm. and eat cake. But it's still hard to do because you feel like you're torturing them. Now, you talk about religion being Catholic. The interesting scenario with your family is that dad's family the is Muslim, Muslim yeah. Lebanese background. Yes. So did they have a very different approach, a very different way of handling, managing? How how involved were they? They were amazing. So I don't have any family in Australia. I have mum, dad, I've got twin sisters and that's it. So my parents migrated in the 60s. Everyone stayed behind. The difference with um, Noah's dad's family, they're huge and I love them. They're incredibly supportive and loud and it was a huge reason why I married him because I didn't have that and you could even through the confusion and noise and and all of that um they were always there and that was really good I guess and but this was the same on my side because we do have quite religious family you know they would say things like um, God's watching over him and pray and I'm super polite I'm a non-confrontational person but I hated when anyone said that to me because I couldn't have felt more betrayed by a God in my life. That this could happen to a six-year-old. I remember being in the car with their dad and saying, who did we piss off for this to happen? I'm like, we're good people. How can he have, I couldn't consolidate, I couldn't consolidate that this, and to a child as well, but what, what have we done And what made me change my mind, not change my mind, but shift my thinking, when I got home that day, right after diagnosis, my parents had been looking after our other son and I walked through the house and my dad was standing in the hallway and he was a bit teary and he just said, I'm sorry. I said, "What what are you talking about? And he goes, I must have given you something, you guys, something genetic. He's like, what are the chances that Frank dies of cancer and then Noah has cancer? And I'd spoken to Peter. It's like he knew. It was like a little fairy, that guy. He looked into the future and he said, in case your parents ask, this is not genetic. Let them know that. And this is before this conversation happened. And so I gave my dad a hug and that night I was thinking about it. And I just decided that we have billions of cells in our body and sometimes those cells don't do what they're meant to do. Sometimes you have a flat tire and sometimes your kid gets cancer. So I can either feel sorry for myself and blame a God that I'm not even sure is there or I can just deal with it. So I stopped feeling sorry for myself really quickly and it's completely appropriate that I felt sorry for myself. Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of people are like, oh, you don't cry. I'm like, oh, no, no, I cried. I I watch Netflix and sad stuff and ate chocolate for a good week. (laughs) And I did have moments where I'm like, I don't, 
it's a stress in your stomach that doesn't go away. It's like a feeling of one. I didn't eat, I think, for about six weeks. And the emotions are obviously worry. Yeah. Guilt. Oh, 100% guilt. I just remember thinking, how did I make, I must have made him this way. I didn't make him strong enough. I mu- it must have been me. Th- those things definitely go and through your mind. Dad had a really different way of coping with it. It was, it was hard. When we walked into the cancer centre the first day, Dr. Peter said something to me, which was, I'll always remember this. So the cancer ward at Monash never used to be a cancer ward. You could have a broken toe and then you could be fighting stage four brain cancer. So your kids would be next door to each other. And they really pushed for a cancer ward to be a thing because there's a saying, I can't remember if it's Swedish or whatever, but he said, pain shared is far less Mm. than pain endured alone. Mm. And it's true. I had these beautiful mums and this particular mum said to me, well, you're in, you're in for a ride. I was like, tell me anything, you know, and she goes, you'll either get divorced or you'll be stronger than ever. As a couple. As a couple. But there's probably more a chance that you'll get divorced. And I think the statistics concur. When something traumatic happens, like the loss of a child Mm. or a life-threatening illness, it happens. You grow apart, you become carers. You're Mm. not a couple anymore. And there is a level of resentment. Um, And I did notice it was mainly women in the hospital. Men deal with things really differently. Not to say, like, um, my husband, he continued to work. I... I shot one wedding the day he was diagnosed and then I closed the business. I completely focused on that, but we needed to pay the bills. We went from, yeah, this middle-class family to how are we going to pay the mortgage if, and it was COVID as well. So everything was shut down. So yeah, our relationship definitely, you know, cancer takes a lot of casualties and our relationship was one of them. So yeah, that was really, really difficult. And which part of that journey Mm -hmm. did you feel like that aspect of your world was falling apart? It was post-treatment because you're so hyper-focused on one thing at the time. We're great parents, both of us together. We worked in unison, you know, great harmony. He did what he had to do with Benji, my other son, and I would do that. And there was really strict regulations at the hospital. We could only do handover at certain times. Those times are when he was at work, it was impossible. So I just lived at the hospital As I said before, he was meant to be home for 21 days of treatment. That never happened because he would become neutropenic. So he'd have no immune system. His own body gave him infections. The amount of times we were so close to sepsis and things like that. So we would then, and for every fever that you have over 37, it's a straight hospital admission. It's to emergency. So yeah, you touched on this before, how Mm -hmm. um, you throw everything at these kids and and the best way to to conceptualise it is that the survival rates for childhood cancer are so good because kids are so strong, so resilient, they can take a lot. And, you know, it's not nice to say it this way, but the truth is that the oncologists hit them hard, Hard. harder than you can an adult or an older person. And they really do. They get pushed to the brink of death. As you said, they have no immune system, so a cough can kill them. Neutropenic, they have no white cells to fight infections. And you've got to be super, super diligent. Every time they get a fever, as you said, straight to hospital, straight, straight to on hospital. antibiotics. You don't realise how amazing your immune system is. We're constantly taking in bacteria. Take it for granted, yeah. Talk to me about Benji. Mm-hmm. How old is he at the time? He was three. Did he have any idea or was this just normal for him? 
Benji's, it's really, I always talk about this. So Benji's suffering more from the effects of this now than Noah is. Why? Because Noah was taken into hospital. You have to think COVID happened here as well, right? So Benji had just started three-year-old kinder. He was immediately taken out and isolated because we were so concerned about infection control. So you either had my mum or my husband. Noah was in a hospital with other children, with play therapy, physiotherapy, starlight captains. Oh, so according to Benji, Noah had it good. Benji begs to have cancer sometimes. It's ridiculous. He'll say to me, God, Noah was lucky. I wish I got cancer because then I'd meet the Carlton Football Club. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't have to get cancer to meet the Carlton Football Club. Wow. Like He doesn't understand the gravity of it. He sees that. Noah got all this attention. Benji was also, we were still co-sleeping. So one minute he was with me and I was very hands-on with Benji. Um, Benji was the tricky child. <laughs> Benji was the bad sleeper. We were very tight. And all of a sudden I disappeared. He was the little brother of the sick kid. Oh, you must be Noah's brother. Oh, you know, and th- that went into prep for him to the point um, in grade one, which is when they went back to school, I guess probably he's in grade two now, I had to have a meeting with his teacher. He had no social skills. He really, he didn't know how to speak up. He would cry at the drop of a hat. Any bruise that he had, oh, do you, th- do you think this is cancer? Just desperately wanted a tumour so he could hang out with his brother in hospital. It was insane. Um, there, there are charities that are devoted. Their entire mission statement is to support the siblings of yeah. children with cancer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Leukemia Foundation is mm. one of those. I couldn't have done it without volunteers even that came in yeah because the focus is Noah the, our whole world was Noah for almost three years so that begs the question who has been your support network so my biggest support network has been surprising well not surprisingly but it's been other mums that are going through other parents I shouldn't say mums I I have lots of friends and they you know offered a shoulder to cry on and, and all of that sort of stuff but they just don't get it. You feel like they can't possibly understand. I don't want them to understand it yeah. as well. Like, I, like I'd like i mentioned before, you, you hear about children with cancer and you, you see the pictures and the campaigns, but when you're confronted with it, most of us admittedly will probably look the other way because it's too hard to comprehend. Uh, you're 100% right. I, I, no word of a lie, going through training at the children's hospital, we get our uh, rotations. You just yeah. get told you're working in this job for three months or this job for six weeks or six months. I used to cross my fingers and hope that I wouldn't get oncology Yeah, because I don't think I would have been able to handle it. Right. I wouldn't call my, my best friend that I've known for 32 years. I couldn't call her and be like, Noah's been up all night vomiting blood. That'd freak her out. You know, anytime her son had a fever, she would call me crying going, do you think it's this? I didn't want that for her. Mm. I didn't want to scare her. I would call one of my oncology mums and be like, Noah did this. And they can relate. Absolutely. Or they could give me advice. Also, I had a lot of support, you know, people roll around and there was, I can't complain, there was meals left behind the door. Even clients of mine, I might have taken photos of their kids years ago, you know, were sending Uber Eats vouchers and what faith had been destroyed by having a kid with cancer was restored with just how beautiful people are. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that helped. And did you lean on the Leukemia Foundation as well? Yeah, absolutely. And they've been a great support just with resources and 
even just someone to speak to because a lot of the Leukemia Foundation um, volunteers have been through it. Mm. That's how they got there. That's how I'm here, you know, because of having lived through it. It's a community, you know, you don't want to be part of it, but if you're going to be part of it, you're glad you've got those people around you. Yeah. Beautifully put. And Mm. since remission in in this time right now, are you unpacking it? Are you getting help? Are you talking about it? I did some therapy. I'm still in therapy. I think women are really different because we do talk. I do these sort of things and they're helpful. They're therapeutic to me. I feel like if I can teach other parents symptoms and give them, like, I don't want to scare people, but if I wish, if I had known those symptoms, if I had known there is a possibility, the only thing people would tell me is kids don't get cancer. So it didn't even enter my space of, Mm. you know, my frame of mind. That's helped me, but there's still definitely an immense amount of work to be done in how I deal with my own pain because my pain wasn't important at the time. It was, let's get Noah better. But the real work for me mentally, and I have to say for my husband as well, was post-treatment because once he was in remission, all of that disappears. Not not the charities because they're for life. They're, they're till he's 18 at least. But people just go, okay, he's better now. But the trauma, I completely disassociate. Anytime I hear a child cry or I'm confronted or I'm uncomfortable, I look so cool, calm and collected, but that's not the way you deal with life. You can't just pretend it's not there. And um, for my husband, it was just pretend it never happened. So they're not healthy coping mechanisms. And, and not, not healthy for someone like you who is a talker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll giggle and like sometimes I'll explain what happens with Noah with a smile on my face. And I think people think I'm crazy. Um, it is my normal. So I'm okay. I've made peace with it. But so I remember Dr. Peter saying to me, Sam, this is really bad. And I'd be like, oh, it's not that bad. Look at the leukemia kids. They've got two years of this. And he's like, what they're doing in two years, we're doing in six months on your son. Do you understand how He's like, you're dealing with it incredibly well. Mm. It's like, but I need you to understand. But how you did. I you did understood. understand it, but I just didn't let anybody know. And as well, I felt like I had a responsibility to Noah. You know, I got up every morning, I put music on. Some days he had terrible neuropathy, so pain in his legs. And I'd be like, get up. There used to be like a pancake machine in a little um, room down the hall. I'm like, we're going to make pancakes and we're going to, and he'd be like, oh, I don't want to do anything. And I'm like, you have to get up. And I think I got that from my mum. So tell me about, this is where I want you to dive into the good stuff. Tell me about Noah now. So Noah, he's really funny. He thinks he's a YouTube star. (laughs) (laughs) As a gift, when he finished treatment, we bought him like a whole computer set. So it was like the two screens with the headset. He's ridiculously confident. And he's, at first I was like, no child of mine's going to be a YouTube star. But um, during COVID and during treatment, He's learning. He couldn't concentrate. Mm. He, their eyes hurt. I didn't realize just how important eyelashes were, for example. You know, they shield to those fluorescent. Yeah. So he would squint a lot and he couldn't read and do all of that sort of stuff. So I spoke to his teacher. I said, I'm sorry, he can't do any of this work. And she said, just find one thing he really likes. And so we started doing coding. Um, it was like an online class and all of a sudden he was creating animations and voiceovers and he's got 500 subscribers now which he woke me up the other morning and he's like mama i'm famous well what what's his 
page called? It's called Nuni Plays because we call him Nuni. So N O N I E P L A Y Z. So Nuni Plays. Plays. All right. If you're listening, follow this. Follow We're him. We're going to shoot him to the stars. <laughs> he's he's really good at it. He's really good and he's passionate. And so I mean, he's still going to university, and I'm still doing the <laughs> Italian mum thing, but. I said to him, you can, have, you can have a backup, but if this is what you want to do, I'll help you. So he does that. He's not very athletic. <laughs> His worst nightmare would be to play sport or be <laughs> outdoors. But he, the best thing he ever said to me, though, once, I, he said to me, um, thank you, just thank you. And I said, what, what for? We were just we were walking. It was that same day we did that walk where he said, I almost died. And he goes, thanks, mum. And I said, what? And he goes, oh, you made having cancer pretty easy. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, oh, you know, it just wasn't as, it wasn't that bad, was it? And I looked at him and I'm thinking, Jesus. If only you knew. (laughs) If only you knew. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It wasn't that bad. I think we did a pretty good job. We sort of like high-fived. And So he sees you very much as the teammate. Yeah. And it's a nice place to be, to be honest. Did that mean the world to you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I sort of, with all the guilt of what happened, I know it's not my fault. But you, it's just there, right? Mum guilt. It's mm. always going to be there. There's not an episode that we don't mention mum guilt. Mum guilt. It's yeah. a thing. It's a thing. But that was like one of those moments where you're like, okay, I'm doing a really good job. Like, don't be so harsh on yourself. And everyone that meets him, and I have to say Benji as well, but everyone that meets him is just like, he's like a 45-year-old man in a very cute little boy's <laughs> body. <laughs> but I wouldn't have it any other way. I love it. <laughs> so what, what would you say... Um, is the biggest thing that you've taken from this experience. And yes. what would you say to the next Samantha who's sitting there, who's just been handed this diagnosis, who's about to start this harrowing journey? What message do you have for them? So that's a good question. To take each day at a time, I was so desperate for answers. There is no right path. There's no map that like they would say to me, he had a good cancer. I've known plenty of children that died from this good cancer. But if you focus so much on the future, you're not going to enjoy every day that he's actually here. And you just have to work with the cards you've been dealt. And I apply that to everything I do now. A lot of things have happened since Noah's been in remission. And one was, you know, I separated from my husband and that was another thing where our whole world changed and I could have felt sorry for myself again and what are we going to do and, you know, you've got to sell the house and all this sort of stuff, whereas I di- wasn't like that. I just said, okay, this is where we need to be now and I don't know where we're going but let's just take one step at a time and I wish someone had said that to me. I wish also someone had said to me, it's okay to be a crazy mum sometimes and if you have a gut feeling, Doctors can only go on symptoms that are presented in their experience. Not every doctor has the same experience. Not every doctor is Dr. Downey, who had seen this a billion times. Well, not a billion. He'd seen it seven times, uh, he told me, but they'd all had a positive outcome. So the worst thing that can happen is you're a little bit crazy. The best case is that you get an early diagnosis. And doctors so, make mistakes. Everyone human, does. Yeah. Mm. I, I spoke to Noah's GP years later because my husband and I were both going through terrible mental health issues. And he had said that he went and saw a counsellor as well. He couldn't make peace with the things that he'd overlooked. He felt he'd missed it. Yeah. And 
I said to him, no, don't be silly. You've, you've learned something now. I've learned something now. Like we can only take it as a learning experience. Like it's, if it was that easy, no one would die of cancer because we'd all be diagnosed at stage one. Mm. It's not that easy. Samantha Sanfilippo, thank you so much. It's okay. Thanks it's for having me. an incredible story. This September is Blood Cancer Awareness Month and the Leukaemia Foundation is spreading the message, you are not alone. For more information about the campaign, please check out the links in the episode notes. And to enjoy more parenting stories like this one, please like, follow, subscribe and share Dr. Golly and the experts wherever you listen. For any information on my sleep programs or new book, head to drgolly.com. And just before you go, I have a favor to ask. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you could rate and review the show so that more people can find us and hear incredible stories like Samantha and Noah's.